Well, good morning. Come on in. Grab a seat. Feel free to take the pop quiz while we're waiting. It is open uh, discussion. You can talk with the people around you, share your answers. But uh, we're going to wait another minute as people trickle in before we get started here. I guess we're recording. We're recording, right? All right, so let me, let me say the true or false questions just for the sake of the recording. <clears throat> the church is at the center of God's purposes for the world, true or false? Ordinarily, there's no salvation outside of the church, true or false? The church begins in the New Testament era. If you're a believer, the local church is central to your happiness. So, again, I want you to take a pick, true or false, and we're going to jump into the class here in a minute. All right, has everybody made their decisions? All right, Um, let me pray for us. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to gather together this morning to begin to talk about the church, to see what the Bible has to say about your beautiful bride. I ask that you would bless our time together, that you would encourage us as we study this rich truth. And that as we study more about the bride, we would fall more in love with Jesus, the bridegroom. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. All right. Anyone want to offer uh, opinions? Church is at the center of God's purpose for the world. True or false? How many say true? How many say false? All right. Ordinarily, there's no salvation outside of the church. How many say true? How many say false? All right. That one's a little more divided. The church began in the New Testament era. True or false? Ah, people are undecided. If you're a believer, the local church is central to your happiness. Ah, it looks like I have my work cut out for me. Um, All right. I'll give you my answers. We're not going to debate because true or false are always really easy to nitpick. But I want you to begin to think about these things. I would say, yes... The church is at the center of God's purposes for the world. Uh, I believe scripture teaches that there is no salvation ordinarily outside of the church. And we can talk about what that means. Um, And I don't believe the church began the New Testament era. And I do believe that the church, the local church, really is central to your personal happiness. And I am choosing that word. Joy as well, but happiness. Uh, I think we have undersold the doctrine of the church. So this is the long title. It's kind of the Puritan title. Puritans have like a page-long title of all their books. But Learning to Love the Glorious Bride of Christ, the Neglected Doctrine of the Church. Um, I really do think that this is probably one of the most neglected doctrines in the last probably 100 years. Uh, Evangelicalism has really uh, looked away from the church. Uh, One book, I'll give a bibliography to you all later, Uh, probably next week, that has a bunch of good resources. But in one book, The Enduring Community, it talked about really how, uh, it just asked this question, if you think about the discipleship material that most of you read in your Christian life, how many of them actually had some aspect related to the local church? 
I went back and looked at some of my books. Almost none of, almost none of them have anything to say about the local church. It's about reading the Bible, praying, scripture memory, all very good things, but very few have much to say about the local church. Uh, I'm thankful that as I became a follower of Christ, the, the person who led me to Christ also told me, you need to be a part of a church. I was uh, involved with a, a parachurch, a, a, a ministry that comes alongside the church called Young Life. But my young life leader made it a real priority for me to go to church. In fact, would take me with him to go. So for me, though I didn't read much about it, he modeled about going and being involved in the local church. So here's some goals for the class. One, we want to look at a biblical portrait of the church with these purposes. One, to really awaken for some of you, hopefully deepen for all of us, your love for the church. Uh, and to really see the church as the bride of Christ, which will in turn, as you love the bride, you'll fall more in love with the bridegroom. That's really my hope. This really is a class that I hope stirs your affections. I hope it feeds your mind. I hope your mind is transformed. But I hope as your mind is transformed, it really begins to stir up in you a greater love for Christ's bride, the church. And then thirdly, that it will make you embrace all the more the privilege of being part of not just the global church, but the local church and what that should look like and could look like for each of us. So over the next, I think it's going to be about, well, we'll have 13 classes interspersed in there. We'll have um, Matt Newkirk, one of our missionaries, will be back, and he's going to teach all of us during Sunday school how we can support missionaries uh, around the world. And then we're also going to give you an update um, for everybody after we have our annual meeting, our General Assembly of the Presbyterian Church. We're going to kind of do a little panel discussion of what that wanted to help you better understand Presbyterianism and understand what went on at our General Assembly. And over the next 13 weeks, as we look at these things, we are going to look at what is the church and why does the church exist and what, is the, what does it mean when we say one holy Catholic apostolic church. We're going to talk about some different things like the visible church, the invisible church. We're going to talk about membership. We're going to talk about government. We're going to talk about the love and the life of the church. So there's a lot of different things we're going to talk about that I hope will stir, fill your mind with that biblical portrait of the church, but also stir your affections for Christ and for his local church. All right, so it's a pretty big thing. I, I want you to love the church. Well, um, whoops. What happens, though, when it's often more the bride of Frankenstein than the bride of Christ, right? Particularly now, there's all these deconversion stories, all this deconstruction, all this these attacks on the church for their failures. And now, all these things are probably rooted in some measure reality. There are ways that people in the church fail one another. There's ways leadership fails. There's ways members fail one another. And so a lot of this does, does come out of those hurts. Um, but this isn't new. We shouldn't be, just because there's more noise about deconversion stories, it's happened from the beginning. People have drifted and wandered from God. That was Israel's story. People were constantly deconverting, moving away to other gods. Uh, we see that the whole book of Hebrews was to help the church not to run away from Christ and from the gospel. John talks about those who went out from the church. So this, this idea of deconversion is not new, but it is real, and it has different elements in different stages of life. So we need to recognize that there are some things that are hard about the church. There's some real hurts and some real sins. 
I would argue, too, that some of the problem today is there's just wrong understanding of the church, wrong expectations of the church, and how you enter into a relationship with the church that is flawed from the beginning. And disappointment is always a function of expectation. So part of what we want to do is to say, what does the Bible talk about and teach about the church? What, how should I understand both the universal church as well as the local church? What is their responsibility to me? What's my responsibility to them? And how should we work together? Uh, historian George Marston um, says this, one of the most striking features of evangelicalism is its general disregard for the institutional church. And so what we're going to begin to look at is, all right, so we have these negative experiences. Um, so there's some really important questions that we need to ask. Well, what is the church? It's not a super easy thing to give a definition to because you could use it in different ways. You could be talking about the universal church. You could be talking about a regional church. You could be talking about a local church. Let alone, what, how do I synthesize that very definition? Why does the church exist? There's a lot of different answers people may give, and in some different ways it may work itself out. Then, uh, just kind of asking that too, is what's God's grand plan for his people locally, worldwide, and eternally? And how does the local church, how could the local church benefit you in your own personal maturity? So these are questions I want you to kind of be wrestling with through as we go through the course. And it's not going to be all an information dump. I really want you to begin to kind of think about some of these biblical things and begin to hopefully reflect and meditate and think through uh, these images and teaching as we go. So what most shaped your view of the church? Um, let's start class participation here. I do ask, though, that you be... Um, Try to be respectful of the Bride of Christ, whether it's our local body or another, but where are some things that you have seen have been problems in the body of Christ, in the church, in the last, in your experience? You can throw a few out there. We all know there's, there's warts in every church. There's problems everywhere. And you can always talk about the church down the street. That's fine. But we got them too. So that's fine. But what are some problems in the local church? Yeah, okay, different, dif dealing with the difficulties of a changing culture. How do we interact with that culture? Historically, that's been one of the big issues. And one uh, person uh, in our denomination, a guy named Ligon Duncan, said actually some of the greatest problems in the church are determining how to interact with culture. That are, that's where the root is, and it's been less theological controversy and more how do we deal with the culture. That was his hypothesis. What else? Yeah, so he said consumerism seeping into the church, um, celebrity culture and some pastors, uh, consumeristic view, kind of coming at the church as a commodity. What does the church have to offer me? How do I, what's your checklist of the things that will meet your needs for the church? How viable is that? How viable isn't? Do you have the right categories? It's really important. Another one or two? Yes. Yeah, the government or lack of government. 
failed leadership, flawed leadership, bad structure, bad implementation, sin of the leaders. Yeah, false doctrine. And again, that's not new. I mean, John was talking about it. Paul was talking about already. They were preaching another gospel. All right, so let's switch. What are things that you have experienced that have been sweet and wonderful and joyful about the local church? (laughs) Check mark for Cliff. All right, the preaching, faithful preaching of the word. Hmm. Okay. Yeah, the church reaching out to care for people with physical and spiritual needs. Second to that. Yeah, being able to pray for one another. What else? Worshiping together. Great. Yes. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah, loving accountability. Yes. Yeah. Teaching our children this connectedness, multi-generational. All right, so let me ask this. Do you view the church largely through your own subjective experience, good or bad? Is your view of the church shaped primarily through your own experience? Or do you view the church primarily through the lens of Scripture. Now, we can't do just one of those, right? I mean, we're not able to often differentiate that. However, because I think we have tended to have a low view of the biblical doctrine of the church, we often view the church through our experience, first and foremost. Whether or not we have the right categories, whether or not we understand it. And, And I share that because, you know, it's important to think about how Paul thought about the church. Remember, Paul was persecuting the church. But he loved the church after he came to faith in Christ. A church that often turned its back against them, that often um, questioned his authority, questioned his love. But he loved her, and he was willing to sacrifice for her. So I just want you to begin to think, all right, how do I shape my view of the church? Is it merely on my experience? And then how should what Scripture teaches about the church influence it? So let me say it a different way. How do you think Jesus views his church? And are you viewing it largely through the lens of Jesus who loved and gave himself for the church that's sanctifying the church? Or is it based on your own expectations and things that, you missed. All right, so I want to pause. We're going to switch here. We're going to do a little, uh, we had technical difficulties, so I'm going to need to show this video from the back. Uh, And while he's switching over, this is the 50th anniversary of our denomination, the Presbyterian Church in America, and they have a series of videos of people sharing their stories about the PCA and what they want to pray for the PCA. And so throughout this course, I'm going to play some of these videos. I think today um, is a day of prayer for the, well, it is a day of prayer for the PCA, and I think Mike's going to mention some of that in his uh, prayer for the kingdom. But I want you to hear Susan Hunt's story. Some of you may not know who Susan Hunt is. She's going to tell you a little bit, but for, she's had a huge influence on the women's ministry and the life of the denomination. Um, 
and it's, it'll be amazing if, to hear that when you hear her tell about the start of her story. It's only going to be about four minutes, but I want you to hear her story, and, uh, and I want you to begin to um, connect, because we are a local church who's part of a broader church, the, our denomination, which is part of the universal church. So with that, let's listen to Susan Hunt. I'm Susan Hunt. My husband, Gene, was one of the founders, so my PCA story begins at the beginning. He graduated from seminary eight years before the PCA was born. So we knew what it was like to be in a denomination that questioned and even denied the authority of God's Word. We prayed and longed for the day when this new denomination would be formed. In August of 1973, the steering committee called for the advisory convention and they encouraged the men to bring their wives. It was called to plan for the first general assembly. I was a young mom with three little children, but I went with Jane. They had also appointed a committee led by Georgia Settle to plan a gathering for us. I wasn't interested in women's ministry. I did not know anybody, but I went to that meeting. And as I sat there and listened to Georgia speak, her love for the Lord and for His Word and His church, for her husband and for all of us and for the women's ministry that she envisioned and was praying for just captivated my heart. And I left thinking, I don't know her and I'm not sure where she's going, but I wanna follow her because I know if I do, I will know Jesus better. A couple of months after that, our church withdrew from our former denomination. It was exciting, but it was also very scary. And then in December, there was the first General Assembly of the PCA. Finally, we belonged to a denomination that was committed to being true to the scriptures, to the Reformed faith, and obedient to the Great Commission of Jesus Christ. This unity of purpose cultivated a unity of heart. We began to experience the, the rich beauty of covenant life as we felt connected to other churches and to all of the committees and agencies of this new denomination. It was such a joy to be a part of that and to, to support and be involved in those various committees and agencies. I'm 83 now and Jean is in heaven. I miss him being here to celebrate this 50th anniversary, but then my imagination soars to the heavenly places, to the festal gathering, to the church triumphant. And from that perspective, I pray with joy and gratitude and great hope for the PCA, knowing that our Father is on his throne and he is building his church and the very gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So brothers and sisters, in the words of Psalm 34, will you glorify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. All right. Well, for better or for worse, I don't know if you notice, our logo looks like the Mandalorian. Um, it was before he came out, so um, let's see. 
All right, so what is the church? Uh, the Bible gives us lots of different images, and a tool that you can use as you study the scriptures is called biblical theology, and this is a very um, simple, boiled down way, it's not all of it, but one of the ways to think of a biblical theological approach is to take a word or a theme, and you trace it through the scriptures and see how it uh, develops and how it's used uh, similarly and differently throughout. So uh, we'll get to one in a minute, but think about how in the temple, that was where God met with his people. Then in John 1, Jesus said, essentially, I am the temple, I've come and dwelt with you. And then in the New Testament, Paul says, you're the temple. So there's this development. So what you would do is kind of say, all right, what was this image? What did it show? What was it foreshadowing? How's it realized in Jesus? How's it different? And then you kind of think on it and meditate on it. Uh, and make connections and hopefully um, are moved to worship and awe and, and transform through thinking that. All right, a, a simple definition, and it's by no means where we're going to end up, but of the church is a community of God's people. Uh, now, if we think about the Old Testament, and you go back to the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve were there in the presence of the Garden with God, worshiping and delighting with him. And from the very beginning, there were people who were worshiping. Even after Cain and Abel, even when Cain and Abel came, what did they do? They were offering sacrifices. So here's the family of Adam worshiping God, offering sacrifices, the people of God, the community of God worshiping him. Uh, so there's always been a community of people worshiping God on earth. In many ways, Garden of Eden was that initial temple where God was there with his people, dwelling with his people, and they were worshiping with him, talking with him, communing with him. Um, and then throughout, you could see really the rest of the story of the Bible is God bringing people to himself, individuals, families, then family becomes a nation, and God calls the nation to be his holy people. So something significant happened at Sinai. Uh, there's this covenant with God. It's often called the Mosaic Covenant. If you have your Bibles, uh, I invite you to turn to Exodus 19. <clears throat> I want to read a few verses there. Exodus 20 is where the Ten Commandments are given. But before that, starting in verse 3, Moses goes up to God. And the Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So here at the covenant, in a unique way, all the people of God are there hearing him speak through Moses to them, saying, all right, I'm entering into this covenant, this agreement with you. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. I'm the, the king. You're my vassal. You're my servant. And as you keep these things, as you walk in obedience, I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make you a holy nation. This, so this is really the forming of the nation of Israel here. Before they were growing families, uh, fulfilling the promise to Abraham, but now they're becoming a nation. They're recognized as the holy people of God who are made to worship God. So more than just a kingdom they were really meant to be a people who worship God. It's really more of a theological body than just an ethnic body. 
That's why even throughout the Old Testament, you'll hear him say, not all of Israel is Israel, because they were not following and worshiping the one true God. So he calls them a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Now flip over to the New Testament, to 1 Peter 2. And this is one of my favorite passages over the years for kind of understanding who the church is. So in 1 Peter, we've just talked about Jesus being a living stone and making a holy people. And in verse 9 and 10, this is what he says. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God in the day of visitation. All right, what do you notice about that passage? Calls them a holy nation. Great, what else? Royal priesthood, what does it sound like? What's 1 Peter 2 sound like? Exodus 19, he's saying, hey, Israel, this is what I'm going to call you, Israel. And here, Peter's saying, hey, church, guess what? This is who you are. Do you see what's happening here? Israel is the church. The church is Israel. There's one promise, one plan, one design. And he's saying, taking all this Old Testament imagery, other people, you're the people of God. I've shown you mercy. You were not a people, now you're my people. And he's giving them their identity. And their identity is connected to Israel from the Old Testament, who are set apart to be a holy people, a kingdom of priests. What else what else comes out at you, sticks out at you from 1 Peter 2? What should we do as a result? Yeah, abstain from the passions of the world and give God the glory. Proclaim his excellencies. Worship the Lord, both in your words and in your life, so that the people, outsiders, strangers, See who you are. Isn't that what the call was to Israel? Be a holy people so that the rest of the nation say, man, your God is amazing. They were to bear witness by their life as a community being set apart and holy. And so is the New Testament church to do that as well. And so these same words help us understand that there's this this connection between the people of God in the Old Testament and the people of God in the New Testament. So one of the, the names or images for the church is the assembly. And when God would call the people together, they use this one word in Hebrew, um, call, and it's a sign of gathering people together to hear from the Lord, to worship the Lord. And it's used throughout Deuteronomy. That same word in the New Testament is translated as church. Or for those of you who know a few Greek words, one of them is ekklesia. Again, again, you may not care about these things, but where we get the term ecclesiology, or the doctrine of the church, comes from that Greek word, ekklesia. So the Old Testament word and the New Testament word 
are used synonymously in much of the New Testament as this idea of congregation. So the idea that the assembly of God's people, they come together, their primary purpose is to come together and to worship God, both in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. And so we know in Hebrews 10, though it's not uh, specifically limited to calling together for corporate worship, there's this urge for the church to get together, to not stop meeting together, but to spur one another on towards love and good deeds. In 1 Corinthians, Paul uh, says this in 11.8. No, I put the wrong verse there. I'll have to figure out what that typo is, because that's not right at all. Maybe someone else can figure it out for me. Um, Psalm 122, 122.1 says, let us go to the house of the Lord for worship. So there's this sense that we're the called people to come. Um, John Frame, a theologian who's been at Reformed Theological Seminary, says Israel was the church of the Old Covenant, and the New Testament is the Israel of the New Covenant. And throughout Galatians, Paul would call the church the Israel of God. Uh, so much so that he would even say that um, you have believed in Abraham, and you are part of the family in the promises of Abraham. So there's one body in the Old Testament and New Testament, one set of promises which were fulfilled in Jesus, so that the New Testament church, bearing the names and titles God gave to Israel, and all of Romans 11 is this extended metaphor of the olive tree, and it says some branches were broken off. Some of the Jews who were not Jews by faith have been cut off from the people of God, because at the heart of the people of God is a worshiping people. And then some who were outside, Gentiles, they've been put into the one tree. One tree, one people, one God, one baptism, one faith. And that's why Paul goes to such extremes in Ephesians 2 to say, look, the dividing wall has been removed. There's one people of God that are fulfilling the one promise of God. Now, I, I share that because there's um, kind of, I think it was in the, mostly in the late 19th, early uh, 20th century that this teaching called dispensationalism really began to get some um, momentum, and people began to use it as the grid to read the Old Testament, and there was really showing the discontinuity. They really saw two very different things. There's a path and promises for Israel as an ethnic people of God, and there's a path for the spiritual people of God and the church. And I think that is a wrong reading of the Old Testament, as I've just tried to show you the oneness throughout. Uh, but it can really impact um, kind of how you understand the church, how you understand God's plan of salvation. And, um, to, and you might, I don't, I don't know, if, what do I think? Well, if you have a Ryrie or a Schofield Bible, those are very popular dispensationalists who kind of saw the discontinuity of the church and saw two different plans. Um, so I just want you to begin to say, oh wait, God really did have one plan beginning in Genesis 3 that he's going to send the one from the seed of the woman who's going to crush the head of the serpent, which we see culminating in Revelation. Well, in 1 Peter 2, I don't know if you noticed, right after he gave those things, he said, dearly beloved, live this way. I want to look at another image of the church, the beloved. Uh, it's used more than 30 times. Someone want to read 1 John 4.11 for us? Someone turn there and read 1 John 4.11. Thank you. All right. 
God so loved us, we ought to love one another. Beloved. 30 times He calls the church the Beloved. We could go through all those passages and just see how God is called Beloved, both Old Testament and New Testament. If that's true, if we are His Beloved, what are some implications? What are some applications that should come from that? Here's where I want you to think. Okay, if I'm Beloved and the church is Beloved, I'm part of this church, what what implications does that have for how I think about the church and how I live my life? Yeah, we should love the ch- those in the church, those who are around us. What else? Okay, motivation for obedience. Yeah, we are loved, so therefore we would want to. Yes? Yeah, you love the church, the institution, the organization, the organism itself. Other thoughts? Yeah, you want it to flourish. This is something, um, one... You love it. Christ loves it. You, you want to see it be beautiful in all that it can be. Yes? Mm-hmm. Yeah. 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 Right. First Peter 2, this urging, this loving, uh, being pushed to love and live a godly life. And Sean's going to be helping teach this class. He'll be up next week. Um, uh, Dave Larson will help us. I think Steve Welsh is going to help us. So we're going to tag team some of these things. Uh, There's a great little book called A Place to Belong by Megan Hill. Uh, Of all the books, um, it's probably the most accessible and practical. Again, I'll give you a bibliography next week. Um, But this is what she has to say. Uh, These are her three applications, which you kind of hit on. What God loves, we must love. In Ephesians 1, it says, be imitators of God's love. Okay, So he's beloved the church. We are to imitate God who loves his church through Jesus Christ. So we should be committed to loving the unlovely. That's what God did. While we were enemies, he still loved us. And Deuteronomy 7, 7 and 8, he says, Israel, why did I love you? It's not because you're the greatest. Actually, you're the least. I loved you because I loved you. Now here's the thing, and we don't think about this, is everyone in the church is unlovely. No offense, but all of us are unlovely. All of us have been enemies. All of us fail one another. All of us fail in loving the bride and loving Christ. problem is, so often what we see is other people's failures more than we see our own, because we're looking out. We're rarely looking in at ourselves. We're rarely taking time to let the, the Word and others have a mirror towards us. So we need to realize Jesus loved the unlovely, so we're called to love the unlovely. Not just those we connect with, not just those we like with, not those we share interests with. We're to love all of one another. And we're to love sacrificially. Uh, Philippians 2 tells us to do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, but in humility consider others more important than yourselves. Christ gave himself for the church, and we're called to sacrifice the church. And just as I look out, So many of you are already doing that. You're doing it in many ways just so we can gather to worship on Sundays. Some of you are engaged in serving uh, outside in our community or serving one another. But it costs. It costs time. It costs money. It costs emotional energy. But I also want you to know it's a love that's making us beautiful. As we are loved by Christ, He is making us more and more like Christ. 
And it's no small thing that it's in the context of the body of Christ in relationships where we struggle to love one another that we become more lovely. Where we are having to be empowered by God to love one another. To love that person who's different than me. To love that person that thinks differently than me. That is older than me, younger than me, or a different political party than me, or a different music preference than me, or a different uh, passion for ministry than me. And say, wait, they're brothers and sisters loved by Jesus. I'm called to love them. And I love this line. God doesn't find people who are beautiful and then decide to love them. Rather, he makes objects of his love beautiful. And part of how he does that is through our relationships in the church. Through helping each other be sharpened uh, one-on-one through his love. All right. Another image, and I don't want to go too much in this because Sean's going to touch on it some, but um, I mentioned this as kind of the biblical theological development. Um, the temple of God in the Old Testament, the tabernacle and temples where God came and uniquely dwelled with his people. But they had to be at a distance. They had to have sacrifices. And then in John 1, Jesus comes. In John 1, 14, he says, I have tabernacled. I am dwelling among them. So Jesus is saying, I am God. I am in your midst. You don't need this building. It's me. That was part, also, when the veil was torn from top to bottom, it was a sign, hey, I'm the final sacrifice. You have access to the Father through me. I'm the living temple. In fact, so much so that you now are the temple. You are the living people of God, both in 1 Peter 2, that you're living stones being built on one another, but also individually in 1 Corinthians 6, he makes that thing, hey, don't allow your sin to be your body to be used in sin because you're the temple of God. So there's an individual and a corporate connection to, to who we are as the temple of God, which then also we're priests, which we talked about in 1 Peter 2.9. So we're to intercede for one another. That's one of the main things priests do. They intercede on behalf of the people to God. We're to be there for one another. So, again, I want you to think of these images because... Um, there's so many different ones, and here's the thing. Some of them will resonate with you more than others. And what we tend to do is we take those images that particularly, and those metaphors that resonate with us and say, that's what the church is supposed to be. And there might be another one that just doesn't really resonate with you as much. And that one's just not as important. So then what happens is your view of the church gets a little bit of a little misshapen. See, he gives us so many images that have different applications and importance that we need to try to understand the whole to be able to get the vastness of it is rather than picking the two or three that kind of go with your experience your personality um, just the way you're wired so another one the family of god we talked about this a couple of weeks ago but jesus is our elder brother i love this image he takes us by the hand he leads us into the presence of god i mean what an incredible picture in there's the doctrine of adoption. He's God's our father. Christ is our brother. We're brothers and sisters with each other. It stresses the intimacy in life in the church. Uh, real quickly, what are some implications that the church is a family? Okay, we support each other. We're there for each other. Yeah, yeah. we're not opting in, which takes away some of the consumerism, right? You are born, you didn't get to choose your family, you're born into your family. Guess what, if Christ is your Savior, the church is 
the bride. You're part of the bride. You're part of the family of God. You're in, whether you like it or not. You may not like all your brothers and sisters. You may get in some sibling fights. Um, all right, let's look at this. So I want to give you a few. Again, we're only going to hit on some of these, but here, here is the thing. If we are united to Jesus, all that is Jesus is ours. So different images. The church is a bride. Well, Jesus is our bridegroom. We're united with him. Um, we're the flock. Jesus is the good shepherd. That has some significant implications for how we think about life together. Um, kingdom, he's the king. Uh, the house, Christ is the cornerstone. A body, Christ is the head. We're heirs, Christ is an heir. We're beloved. Jesus is the beloved one of the Father. See, you can't help but think about the church. When you think about the church, you can't help but think about Jesus. And so as we think about the church, I, want, I really want you to fall more in love with your Savior. And as you think about your Savior, I want you to fall more in love with his bride. And yes, on this side of eternity, we often more look like the bride of Frankenstein than the glorious bride that we're going to be. But God is at work doing amazing and beautiful things in his church. So here's a quick definition. This is from John Frame. The church is all of God's elect, the one holy, universal, and apostolic people of God gathered together in a visible organization. Now, that's a lot there. We'll try to unpack that over the, the, as time goes. But I want you to think about, again, that we're something that God is bringing together. This isn't your choice. This is his design from the beginning to have a people of his own that would change the world. Um, so we're out of time. Um, but this is just the introduction. We're just getting started. So I hope even today has begun to stir your affections and say, man, there's a lot to this idea of the church that I haven't really thought about. That I haven't said, okay, how does this apply to me, not only in the universal church, but in the local church. What does it look like? And as you see these images come up in your Bible reading, pause and say, okay, what does that mean? How does it help me understand who Jesus is? How does it help me understand who the church is? How does it help me relate to my brothers and sisters in Christ? How does it help me relate to my fellow priests? How does it help me relate to um, fellow living stones that are being built into the temple? So my hope is that you'll kind of ruminate on this stuff in the coming uh, days throughout the week. We're going to pick up with some more images next week, the building, the body, and the bride of Christ, and maybe some more things, but uh, let me pray for us. Help us, Lord Jesus, to love your church, the church that you came and died for, that you gave your life for her while we were ugly and um, needing to be loved. Thank you that you loved us just because. And I pray that you would help us take that our, our bad experiences with the church as well as our good, and that we would filter them through the lens of Scripture. Uh, that you would help us embrace the totality of your image of the church, not just the couple that really means something to us, so that we don't have a misshapen, distorted view of your church. And so, Lord, thank you again that you loved us and have made us yours, and that you are continuing to make us beautiful through the work of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.